you know, Russia is a loser in global capitalism. It's a yeah, so this is, It's a you know it's, it's it's a gas station with nukes. Look, whatever they say, the Biden administration, they say, oh, Russia is nothing. It's a gas station with nukes. Well, Ukraine is nothing too. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe by far. Extreme. So this this is the point where from here on out, we'll be talking for patrons, uh, one hour and five minutes, and we'll continue talking about um, the connection between the capitalist material relations and social relations, both, and the realm of politics. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Before we jump into the actual interview, I'll just say that my plan, because you have the Hillary Clinton action figures behind you, yes, uh, and and Trump and Obama. I uh, my plan in 2020 was to get the uh, Biden and the Bernie action figures, and then when the nomination happened, to bury one of them. Oh, or know, burn one Trump. of them. Have oh, you seen? Burn. Who's the um? Is it who's the, Todd Haynes did a crazy movie with action figures of the carpenters the carpenter story did you ever see that no oh it's crazy it's like a funny <laughs> film about the carpenters the band but with barbie dolls mm-hmm. and and you know the whole self-torture st- i mean it's just it's like it's like you know what girls do with their barbies they like mutilate them yeah right but like a film but about the carpenters <laughs> Whenever I've encountered a Barbie doll, <clears throat> yeah, it has always been stripped naked. Right, I've never no, seen it's one. Like, in it. <laughs> right, it's like it's like a kind of a yeah. Hold on one second. I'm just gonna comb my hair a little bit. Okay, me. I look a little bit too old. I also need to comb my hair. You can't really do anything with. <laughs> now you got good hair, Doug. I, I'm a little standing on the top, and it's fine. I don't, I'm not very self-conscious about it, but I need a haircut. Like, I've been meaning to give myself a haircut. My clippers died. So then oh. I had to buy new clippers, and so I haven't broken them in yet. All right, so let's dive into this. Um, let me see if I can pull up the questions I asked you. I, we, we're going to talk about Moishpa Stone. I recently made a, a video about Jane Austen and uh, traditional cap, uh, traditional Marxism. And um, I don't know how successful that was uh, as an analogy to refer to Jane Austen, but um, I wanted to talk to you because you were a student of Postone's, mm-hmm. you were majorly influenced by Postone, um, and I just wanted to check in with you about what your feelings are about Postone's critique of traditional Marxism, uh, how close to the mark I got uh, when I talked to uh, Conrad Hamilton about Postone, but also the, in this video. And um, if I can figure out whether or not I should be afraid of you, Chris, because you are going to push everyone back in traditional Marx, into traditional Marxism, or whether or not you are a figure of, of transformation. This is uh, how I would. That's a good, good question. I mean, um, I'm not sure that that's an easily resolvable question because that would have to be worn out in practice. Right. Right. I mean, I've always liked to put it as we need to do something like the old style Marxism, but of Mm -hmm. course, it's also going to have to be different. Um, But what we have in the last hundred years, more than a hundred years, is false starts at something different. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That all kind of, you know, had some promise, but fell below the original Marxist vision. And, you know, so I did have the Conrad Hamilton interview that you did in mind mm-hmm. um, also. Uh, and so it's good that that's it's a good kind of follow up as well as, you know, your the video that you just did 
on Postone and also the interview that you did back in the day. And I, I was trying to figure out, you only, you only interviewed Moish once for Zero, right? No, twice. Oh, twice. Okay, so I know that I've seen both of them, but I only rewatched one of them. Which one? Because one was about anti-Semitism. It and was one was one. Okay, yeah. The one that matters, I think, is the one that was about his time, labor, and social domination. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also about new left politics, which I think mm-hmm. is how we need to understand Moish. We need mm-hmm. to understand him as a new leftist, as a as one of the best new leftists, but also limited by the new left. And you know, and we can say that now, fifty years on, about the failure of the new left, because I think our generation lived under the shadow of the new left, mm-hmm. and I was always very. I was in an Oedipal struggle with the new left and not just Moish mm-hmm. um, and not just Adolf Reed, but like everybody, you know, the Spartacists, <laughs> like the whole, the whole thing, you know, because the adult activists that I met as a young person in the eighties were all new leftists. Right. And so I, you know, and, and others, you know, like Chomsky and Michael Harrington and Murray Bookchin. I mean, obviously they're older, but they still, to me, essentially breathed the same spirit of the new left. You right. Know, the people that I encountered were, I would say, generally speaking, new leftists in the parameters of their thinking. And there are all sorts of ways of thinking about that. There's the Cold War context, which is mm-hmm. obviously overriding, meaning, you know, Harrington, Chomsky, Moish, Adolf totally traumatized by Stalinism. Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. Murray Bookchin, obviously, you know, um, you know, just everybody, my professors at Hampshire, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, wrestled with Stalinism, you know, they liked, they liked new left Stalinism, but not old left Stalinism, but they also <laughs> had a kind of respect for the old left Stalinists as well. No. Why did, did they say like outright, we like new left Stalinism. I just tend to doubt that they would claim it. No, I mean, they would just say things like Che and Fidel. That's okay. enough. It's enough to say that. Right, That's right, Stalinism. Right. You know, the, right. I mean, the crazy experience that I had was you couldn't call Che, Fidel, and Mao Stalinists or Ho Chi Minh a Stalinist because they weren't white. I mean, of course, Fidel is white, but, you know, mm. he's a sort of honorary non-white person. Mm-hmm. You know, because the Cuban Revolution, obviously, the history of racism in Cuba is deep, and yeah, you know, and Che is obviously white. You know, like mm-hmm. these are white Spanish people; these are not indigenous mm-hmm. people or black people, but they were on the side of the people of color, right? So, mm-hmm. people of color couldn't be Stalinist. Only white, only old white people, Leonid Brezhnev—that's Stalinism. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I was just like, no, this is total, total BS, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, Moish and Adolf were not like that. Right. They were craven like that. You know, the Stalinists today the, the, on Twitter would claim that Stalin wasn't white. Nor well, was he, he wasn't. Was he's a fucking Caucasian. You know, he's a bandito. He's right. Like, you know? But also, not only that, he's not cisgendered either. He's trans. <laughs> That's what you find on Twitter. Oh, this is some ML insanity. No, yeah. this is like total, total Marxist-Leninist, Maoist, like Mim Notes type insanity. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, I mean, it's kind right. of a joke, but then people take it seriously, right? Yeah, it's a joke, but it's not really. In other words, it's said <laughs> in jest and somehow meant seriously. Right. And, right. you know, because, you know, we need our heroes, right? And I've got my heroes. I mean, you know. I'm not going to pretend I don't have my heroes. I do have my heroes, but I think they, you know, there was a, um, speaking of Stalinism, a Maoist, Mm. Greg Lucero, who I engaged not only through Platypus, but also through my campaign for a socialist party, you know, an activist Mm. here in Chicago spoke at one of the Platypus conventions, but I worked with him around the Socialist Party USA and around kind of activism, kind of para-DSA activism. He was from the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Mm-hmm. But he he broke with them and then was just trying to do the same politics, but kind of on his own and with his little cult following, like mm-hmm. his, his his two wives, mm-hmm. you know, his like polyamorous or whatever. And, um, you know, and he just said to me once, Chris, you know, I'm not interested in losers. I'm interested in winners. 
So he was saying, you know, Kautsky, Rosa Luxemburg, Trotsky are losers. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in losers. I like Lenin and Stalin and Mao because they're winners. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they did not win. They did right. not you know, that like, sounds like Trump, though, doesn't it? It's a very Trump-like statement. I, it, I like people yeah. who didn't get captured. I like. Oh, the- <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, look, John McCain deserved that, though, because John McCain was a neocon warhawk. Oh, sure. And Liz, you know, and and uh, Liz Cheney also, and Dick Cheney, and Megan McCain, and you know, these people, the mm. the reasonable Republicans, no, right? You know, obviously, they're much worse than Trump. And Trump's not a Republican. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Yeah, but well, I, I didn't mean to bring up Trump, really. I just was no, but the masculinism. Yeah, I mean, the winners and not losers. I mean, it doesn't have to be masculinist per se. But you know, I kind of get it. I mean, you know, Trotskyism helps with this, which is mm-hmm. worshiping of the accomplished fact. Marxists should not be worshippers of the accomplished fact, and that's, right. that's Stalinism. Stalinism is the worshiping of the accomplished fact. And that's its opportunism. And that's its reformism and opportunism as a fairly sophisticated idea. Opportunism doesn't mean just like the way we refer to it morally as like a kind of criminal opportunism, mm-hmm. you know, like crimes of opportunity, like just personal benefit or something. No political opportunism, which means adaptation to capitalism, adaptation to the realities of capitalism and turning that compromise into a principle and not acknowledging it as a compromise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Politics requires just, compromise, right? It does, but it requires uh, well-thought-through compromise. You can't just compromise all the time. And, and You can't, of course, because you can't accomplish anything that way, right? <laughs> right. Like, obviously, you can't, you can't advance towards your goal if you're always compromising. I mean, that's the other thing is that Marxism was in retreat. After 1919, it was in retreat. Stalinism is a retreat. Maoism is a retreat. And that's going to strike people as very strange. But the Chinese Revolution, the Korean Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, these are retreats. They are. I mean, it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around that. But, you know, if you just have a collapse of fascism in Eastern Europe and Japanese occupation in East Asia, and you just have the collapse of a dictatorship in Cuba, and you just sort of take over, Mm. you know, and of course, you could say that about Lenin and Trotsky, too, you could say the Russian Revolution is the collapse of czarism, and they just took over. Mm. But I think they were always very clear sighted about what they were inheriting. Whereas the Stalinists had this kind of heroic triumphalist kind of view of what they were doing. I mean, they also admitted to themselves that they were dealing with backward reactionary countries. I mean, they did, you know, like they, they, they were self-conscious about it. They did know that they were like adapting to social backwardness in Russia and Eastern Europe and China. And, you know, um, I'm not sure the Cubas ever, I don't think they ever acknowledged that. And, you know, it's like a funny thing with Conrad Hamilton because he's your like house Stalinist now. Something. <laughs> right. Know, that's ablation. And, you know, and he's just, you know, and it's a Deng Xiaoping kind of Stalinism. It's like mm-hmm. right wing Stalinism. It's like on the right of Stalinism. It's not like Mao Zedong, like leftist Stalinism. It's right. like very avowedly like, oh, yeah, you need a capitalist road to socialism, mm-hmm. you know, and, you, and, you know, et cetera. And I just think, OK, right. And that, that's where it, it lines up with the kind of DSA Jacobin like social democracy. You know, okay, well, I want to I want to like point out that that go back to Conrad for a second and talk about you know opportunism as opposed to um, just straightforward uh, error because um, it, you know like um, for Conrad I don't know I mean there's I guess there's a level of opportunism where it changes what your theoretical ambitions are or it changes your thought your opportunism is such that you you Be abandon Right, but it's not just that you like say, okay, uh, that's not a, we can't accomplish that, so I'm going to aim lower. It's that oh, that is no longer even conceivable. The 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 I reject the arguments. I reject like a re- you just reject Marx. I wish point. people would do that. I wish people would come all the way there. 
and almost right like obviously i mean well, i think with conrad i think it's pretty close i mean yeah uh <clears throat> but the, yeah. yeah the critique of the, his article and his, and his conversation with me the like the critique of the gotha program is about understanding what the aim is yeah and also and how we're gonna get there yeah but right really, how, how we're gonna get there in other words not confusing i mean I would put it this way because I know like you have a background with the Marxist humanists, right? Right. Yeah. And also, you know, you're engaged with Moish Postone's work, my old teacher. And I of course was a student of Moish and I had a lot of conversations with him about all sorts of things mm. like over many years. And, you know, they would have in common this idea that Marxism, traditional Marxism was like, a Lasallian workers party with Marxist verbiage, mm -hmm. right? That it wasn't really Marxism. It was more a kind of Lasallian socialism, like a kind of state socialism, you know, state capitalism, state socialism, like a mm -hmm. kind of militant working class based kind of Bismarckism basically. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like, yes, it was, but, you can't leave it at that. In other words, Rosa Luxemburg, I always like to say this, like I have an article on Rosa Luxemburg mm -hmm. and the, and the, it's called Rosa Luxemburg and the party because people usually don't think of Rosa Luxemburg as a party person. They think of her as a spontaneous or quasi anarchist, but she's not, she's a party person. And mm -hmm. you know, one of her most famous portraits photographs, she's flanked on one side by a picture of Marx, a portrait of Marx and on the other side by a portrait of LaSalle. Mm -hmm. And she wrote about LaSalle being, you know, really important and the hero of the workers' movement, etc. They were aware. They were aware, right? They were self-critically aware of the LaSallean nature of the party, inevitably. In other words, that Marxism didn't come up with anything new politically. It, it basically tried to add a kind of critical self-consciousness to an existing movement, Mm -hmm. And understand the reasons why the movement was the way it was. You know, it's why I say Marxism is the critique of socialism. It's not mm -hmm. to be the best socialist or the best communist. It's to be the critical self-consciousness of this movement. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I mean, the quotation that I sent you from the manifesto, you know, about the economic nonsense of the workers' demands in the revolution, mm -hmm. you know, that basically they're acknowledging the way in the critique of the Gotha program, like labor vouchers won't work economically, but right. we're still going to yeah. we're still gonna have to do them because the workers are going to demand it. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he speculates. I mean, that, that I would hardly call that the most um, important uh, thought that Marx had that we would, but it's all vouchers. integral. It's very short piece. Marx is a genius. Mm. He's a genius. I mean, he's a brilliant, mm. I mean, he is, I mean, look, he's the greatest revolutionary thinker of all time. Yeah. In terms of historical self-consciousness, understanding capitalism, modern society. I mean, he gave birth to a movement that was the greatest revolutionary movement of all time. Right? Well, I mean, yes. And yet also yeah. that movement was already taking shape, as you point out, and had other contributors to it. And it was he was a critique of that. He was a critic of that movement. He was a critic of that movement. And that's what made him such a brilliant revolutionary thinker and strategist. Right. right? I mean, he's basically been accused of being t like bound to his time. Like Moish is like, well, you know, Marx himself is a traditional Marxist because he's kind of bound to his time. And then the anarchists accused Marx of like appropriating them, like appropriating the Paris well, Commune. And I, I thought Postone's position was Marx, Marx started out um, more uh, tied to traditional Marxism or socialism of his day and through the process of his work became a deeper and deeper critic of socialism. And Well, I mean, yes and no. I would say that, um, yes, there is the idea of the mature Marx mm -hmm. and there is, you know, Moish is, was unhappy with the communist manifesto, but he also acknowledged the brilliance of it. Meaning that it's not like you throw out all the formulations in the manifesto. You don't absolutely not. Moish would not right. do he would no. keep he would keep it, but he would under he would say, and I would say uh, that Marx matured not only theoretically but politically, because it's after the manifesto that he comes up with the dictatorship of the proletariat. He has to have the experience, the actual experience of the 1848 revolution in Germany and France, 
in order to understand the nature of the revolution more. But it's amazing how much they do already understand before the revolution. And I think that comes from the recent historical experience. It comes from looking at chartism and look, looking at the July revolution of, you know, the preceding generation, looking at the Proudhonists, like looking, you know, cr the critique of Proudhon, the poverty of philosophy mm -hmm. is like a, a, a serious work that you'd be hard pressed to show how the insights of Das Kapital are not already there, mm -hmm. you know? And so I don't think that I don't, you know, in other words, and, but Moish would also say, you know, critique of the growth program is great, but he would say still limited by the historical moment. So his, you know, cause what he said to me, so there are two, two formulations I'd like us to keep in mind from Moish. Mm -hmm. One is that traditional Marxism is necessary, but it's insufficient. Meaning he said, yes, of course the workers have to take state power and of course they have to expropriate the capitalists and of course they have to try to institute generalized social planning. And mm -hmm. it's not gonna be shop floor or workplace democracy. It's not gonna be syndicalism. It's not gonna be anarchism. Like that's all necessary, but it's insufficient. So we have to do all of that, but it's insufficient. And the problem I, I, is if you treat that as sufficient to achieve socialism rather than necessary precondition, but not sufficient. Chris, some of the people watching this right now will not have listened to the uh, conversation with Conrad. And they uh -huh. won't have seen my video. So briefly, I just want to state uh -huh. what traditional Marxism is, as I understand it. Um, for Moish. Yeah, for, yeah. for Moish. So most Marxists start from the premise of liberating or realizing labor or workers from the forms of domination, oppression, and exploitation that are imposed upon them by the capitalist class, which are conceived of, um, uh, mm -hmm. the next step, capitalism as a mode of production is conceived of as a system wherein private ownership and market forces conspire to distribute both capital and commodities mm -hmm. unfairly and unequally. That's the second mm -hmm. definition. And the third part of traditional Marxism is that communism is thought to be necessary to overcome the contradiction between the exploitive character of distribution and the massive productive power of labor. So right. those are the three points. Right. And now I think many people might hear those um, uh, and think, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with any of that, right? I mean, but- There's nothing wrong with any of that. Right, right. But on the other, uh, well- No, there except, really isn't. Except that the 20th century state capitalist formations demonstrated that the- that capitalism and even exploitation can continue um, where in a system where the market is fully regulated and ownership is no longer private. Um, they didn't really demonstrate that though. I mean, in other words, um, what they demonstrated, you know, so yeah. So the, the first thing that I said was necessary, but insufficient. The right. second formulation from Moish is that Marx's, insight into capitalism is born of his historical moment. So he's bound to his historical moment politically and socially in terms of what he can conceive, but he has insights beyond it. And the insights beyond it come from Marx living through the constitution of industrial capitalism and the workers' movement for socialism. That because he was there at the beginning, he could see the end. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I, I agree with that generally. In other words, Marx would not be Marx if he hadn't been a child of the 1840s, meaning if he hadn't been a young man coming to full consciousness at the historical moment, the first crisis of industrial capitalism historically. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the objective circumstance. The subjective circumstance is that there's an emerging proletarian socialist movement that mm -hmm. accompanies that objective change of the industrial production right. crisis. Now, right. So, you know, Marx is very clear. It's not distribution, it, it's production. But right. then the question is, how do we understand that, right? And I think that in the quotation from Moish that you just read, distribution of commodities and of capital, mm -hmm. really important, right? right? And so it's really about, you know, if we were to put it in, in very general non-Marxist terms, allocation of social resources, right? And... You know, what Marx observed and what we observe is that the capitalist state does a lot of that now, right? Does allocation of social resources 
you know, they do, you know, not only jobs programs, but they do, they try to incentivize capital and disincentivize capital in various ways. Um, yeah, they interfere in the market all the time. And, you know, this is why a lot of like post-Marxists or like late Marxists will say things like, well, you know, there was always state involvement in the market. The market never existed without the state. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was never any free market capitalism anyway. And, you know, old style Marxists would also point that out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, how do we understand why Marx still haunts us? Because, you know, we do have to step back and say, yeah, but you can say that there was no, never any free market capitalism anyway, and still hold on to the idea that what is wrong in society is the way the market imposes an anarchy onto distribution. And yet it doesn't. In other words, there is. Well, I'm not saying it does, but I'm yeah. saying you can be. A, you can still say you can say the one thing. Oh, there's never been a free market, and thank God for that. Chomsky says that. Oh, sure, right. right? Yeah. But yeah. on the other hand, you can still believe that it is the private That's an anarchist, though, meaning that he, of course, is focused on the state. Right. Um, right. Well, okay. Well, that, well let's no, really, that's the, the reason thing. why. Because well, he, he wants to. The state's the source of everything. Right. But he also believes that, that capitalism that, is the creature of the state rather than the state being the creature. Of right. Capitalism. Yes, I understand. But he but he, if you can if he conceives of the market in the abstract operating on its own principles, he thinks it would just become a power struggle, it just to become uh, chaos. It would just be war right. or something like that. Right. But but the, the point here is that um, you we, can consider a problem living in neoliberalism, meaning mm-hmm. when I watched your conversation with Conrad, mm-hmm. I thought. Okay, really, the problem is that we're so spellbound by neoliberalism that we have a hard time distinguishing between neoliberal policies and capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Because neoliberal policies didn't create this form of capitalism. Capitalism created neoliberalism in the same way that it created the preceding yeah. Ford Keynesian capitalism. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't create it in the sense of like, you know, humans were involved, like humans responded to circumstances. Maybe I'll put a third Moish quote on the table, which is that fear was that we wouldn't get out of capitalism, but we would oscillate between statist and market forms that we'd be stuck oscillating between. And he saw me because I was a Leninist and, you know, he didn't accept my challenge to reinterpret Lenin, but you know, he saw me as part of like, okay, neoliberal capitalism is just going to produce a new statist turn out of its discontents. And, you know, Chris and Platypus, they're just like reanimating the corpse of traditional Marxism. And he was like deathly afraid of that. But he saw it as like an objective tendency that this would happen. And I just thought. Why was he more afraid of that than he was of the DSA? Because I talked to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, oh, when the, the DSA, DSA was in its home. safely domesticated, meaning the DSA is part of the Democratic Party, you know, and so it wasn't going to be. Was, the, was New Deal America, was Fordism safely domesticated as well? Yeah. I mean, well, okay, but in other words, Moish, but nonetheless, nonetheless, Moish it was the same dynamic. It was the same dynamic, right? Yeah, but it was politically. So this is the difference. Like, I feel like you focus on economics and value theory, but there's a whole realm of politics. Right. And right. what I would say, the problem with Moish and the problem with you, mm-hmm. extreme naivete about politics mm-hmm. and not, not like capitalist politics, but socialist politics. In other words, socialist politics risks, it risks being a counter-revolutionary force. If it didn't take that risk, it couldn't be a revolutionary force. Like the precondition for it being a revolutionary force is that it risks being a counter-revolutionary force. That's right. It. But my my question about why would he accept the DSA still stands even more so based on what you just said, because it's clear to me that counter-revolution. Right, yes. right. Well, right. Like the DSA is so, is so clearly counter-revolutionary. Well, you know, it doesn't sure. take the risk, right? I mean, right. It, right. It, it, if you, you just by Moish, saying it's domesticated, right, then that obviously shows that it's Moish was a right social democrat. You've interviewed me about this before. He was a right mm-hmm. social democrat. Uh, like Conrad said, he wasn't an ultra, he's not a left communist, he's not a council communist, he's not an anarchist. 
he's a right social democrat. And and there's a, a certain incoherence to Moish's politics. So yeah. I mean, once you say, I mean, like you cannot be a right social democrat and hold with Moish Pistone's vision of what it takes to create a new society. Check it Not, out. It's about creating a new society. Moish said once mm-hmm. that it took hundreds of years for capitalism to come about. It might take hundreds of years for us to get out of capitalism. Oh, okay. Right. Right. And so therefore we're just going to muddle through in the meantime. Yeah. So you're just choosing what form of bourgeois capitalist politics you think is safest. And that's always going to come down to what's in your self-interest wherever you are. And that goes for you too, Doug. In other words, I do think, you know, the, the gauntlet that I threw down at the sublation launch party about petty bourgeois Mm -hmm. intellectuals, yeah. Oh, yeah. And not I know of, I'm petty bourgeois. Not because, not because of class status or anything like that, but because of the vision. Like, if we are in a position of being theorists and political thinkers, and we allow ourselves the illusion or vanity of if only we were in charge instead of these capitalist economists and politicians, things would be better. And that's the DSA, right? And yet, they, there's no threat of that. In other words, Moish understood very well. He, in other words, it's like if you want young people jacked up on leftism, which version do you want? Yeah, DSA is what Moish wants. That's that's cool. Like, and and Adolf's the same way. Adolf's the same way. He doesn't want people to be ultra, even though he's kind of ultra. In other words, he's a Korsh council communist. I mean, he is mm. right, but he thinks now politically. The task is social democracy. It is, right? That is the task we want a better form. What they wanted, what Moish and Adolf wanted, they had insights based on the new left, based on a discontent and a reality of a Keynesian Fordist capitalism that has disappeared. And so unconsciously what they wanted was the reconstitution of that so that they could pick up and proceed from there, right? Mm -hmm. In other words... And that's the DSA vision. In other words, the that's, idea that was that, a chap that was Chapo's vision. Yeah. Too. I mean, explicitly. They said it out loud. They well, said, ben Burgess, you know, it's like the, the vision uh, is Ben Burgess, no, not so much. But Chapo, yeah. The that's but the Matt idea Christmas. is that you want people paid more, you want them to have more leisure time, you sure. want more social safety net, and then the and then we can struggle for socialism. And it's like, right. look, the old socialists, Lenin, Luxembourg. Eugene Debs, they struggled for socialism in abject conditions, abject conditions. People were working six or seven days a week, 12 hours a day, like brutal, a brutal form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. They were able to organize millions of people, working class people in the core capitalist countries. It's not like you can't do it unless people have more higher wages and more leisure time. You can't right. like workers can't organize. No, that is completely untrue. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you go around the world and you look at, you know, where there are socialist parties and communist parties that are working class based in newly industrializing countries and under very poor social and working conditions and political conditions, they organize anyway. And so, but again, they do have this idea that first, we want progressive democratic policies, and then we can struggle for socialism. And my point is, I'm not sure that we're going to go back to that, right, at all. I don't think that's really possible. And that is not a precondition, and it's actually leading in the wrong direction. Why, Chris, why isn't it possible? Why can't we go back to it? Well, because we kind of never really had it. And this is where the identity politics people come in because mm-hmm. they're like, well, yeah, maybe the straight white men had high wages and a social, you know, security safety net and leisure time. Mm-hmm. But look at the bottom of the working class, look at black people, look at women, look at immigrant labor. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to see the seamy underbelly of the the golden age. You're but that see- claim is a that's an empirical claim. That's not just a political claim 
or a one. But it's a political claim in the context of the new social movements. No, but it, it, if you take it from a right, it is a political claim, but it is an empirical claim first and foremost. It is saying, yeah. and it's true. It is, it is claiming. Well, is it? It's yes, claiming the that black the amount of the auto factories were paid less than the white workers. Sure, but it's claiming that their jobs were the, less secure. Right, but it's claiming that the the total surplus created in the post boom after World War II was reliant upon no, it's the a inequality. It's not of, well, it's, no of of the inequality between races or between genders, and that without countries? it, or between countries. Well, between countries, perhaps. But the point is like. Um, right. I mean, obviously, the uneven development between nations is, uh, you know, is a precondition, con- for, precondition for, for yeah. capitalist development in any nation. So, yeah, Up I completely today. agree there. But but the um, but the point is that if you start to say, OK, it is uh, impossible um, then for those conditions to return. Um, well, first of all, we have to ask, what do we even mean? Well, the United States was never a Scandinavian country, and it was never going. Okay, to. right, right. Yeah. And even the Scandinavian countries had the Laplanders, and they had, you know, Eskimos, and they had immigrants. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's kind of invisible, right? And in other words, there was a reserve army of labor. It's not like are you are you, are you suggesting that the reason those in, divisions internally were there was because profitability simply demanded it that no, in order for it's a precondition for the constitution of wage labor it's a it's it's like whether you talk about the primitive accumulation of capital or the ongoing accumulation of capital it never exists without a reserve army of labor right okay that i that i understand we just got to be i'm just trying to get you to be specific as to what the claims well, are here politically. So the one thing that stood out for me in your interview with Moish mm-hmm. from Zero Books back in the day was he said something like the political strategy cannot be the old socialist strategy of class unity, where you try to squelch other struggles as divisive of the working class. He said mm-hmm. that with respect to the new social movements, but he also said, but of course we don't want particularism in the new social right. movements, and I'm right. like. You know, then basically you're left with the Democrats. You're left with an alliance of the working class and new social movements. And guess who facilitates that? The Democrats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And the reformed Labor Party, the constituency Labor Party politics of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, you know, the social democratic parties of Western Europe did do this. They became new leftized. They mm-hmm. did incorporate the new social movements it as a kind of alliance with the working class. Well, let's talk about the new socialist movement, uh, the new social movements. Were those social movements primarily col- aimed at cultural change? Sure. They're anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-homophobic, this, that, and the other. I mean, they also obviously had like a kind of utopian dimension, um, mm-hmm. you know, like new ways of life, mm-hmm. um, you know, new gender relations, new sexual relations, um, you know, even multiculturalism has a kind of utopian dimension to it. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of a kind of, you know, it's a liberal vision. It's pluralistic culture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, it's never meant to be entirely national particularistic. And, you know, I mean, insofar as it was, then it was nationalist. And then people called it rightly fascist. In other words, Black Panthers condemned cultural nationalism as black fascism. They were right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a serious threat except to cadre on the left who get assassinated by such people. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not like a serious social threat to like, I don't know, white people or something. No, I mean, obviously, you know, but, but it's a threat to a nascent movement of socialism. It is, it's divisive. I mean, in other words, I, you know, when I heard that, I was like, Moish, yeah, I mean, he's dead, but you know, I just, you know, I carry on my internal dialogue. I was like, what is this? Do you know? And again, like DSA Jackman does the same thing. They're like, well, we're not PC. We're not into identity politics, but, you know, we need to have a people of color caucus and this and that. Right. Mm-hmm. And we can't mm-hmm. ignore racism. And it's like, yeah, but but what does that mean, really? You know, well, I mean, it seems to me that if you're talking about a politics based on anti-racism, that you would that you would probably try to aim at. 
legal solutions or policies that protected uh, minorities? That yeah, you, you know, be on the basis of the capitalist state's management of these things, protecting yeah, classes. Right. So like protecting their right to employment, protecting their right to housing. Um, and, and then there gets to be a level where when you're trying to um, impose policies to change the culture where you come into conflict with civil society overall, you can't have civil society and have the state encroach as far as people might I mean, want this it to. Is why the old way that the left dealt with these things and, you know, the Eugene Debs way, which is maligned as like colorblind racism or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but even, you know, what the Communist Party actually did in the 30s. So they like endorsed black nationalism, like a kind of black belt thesis. But in practice, they didn't really follow that. That's not how they organized workers. They organized them interracially. And, you know, when they aimed at working class unity, um, you know, they paid some lip service. Uh, yeah, the problem is now we're not dealing with working class people at all. But to get back to my petty bourgeois stuff. Right. Mm. We're not talking about the working class at all. We're talking about the terms on which petty bourgeois intellectuals are going to agree and be part of a unified left. And I just want no part of that. That's I'm not interested in that. Do you think that's what sublation is aiming at? Sure. The, the company? By default. It By is. default. I mean, and that's fine. I'm just saying beware. Well, the vision of sublation, you know, I, I was one of the first people to really turn to YouTube mm -hmm. uh, as a part of this. I oh, mean, BreadTube. Not, well, be, even, I think I came around uh, right came around the same moment. Well, I think it was like there was BreadTube going and I came around from the left. I mean, I don't think BreadTube really came from the left left. It came from. Oh, I guess like, I think of it as a left thing, but. Right. Like, you know, there was like. There was it was a philosophy. There was something like philosophy tube and a guy named H Bomber guy. And what they were doing is like cultural criticism, uh -huh, left, yeah, uh -huh. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and those were the More those general. were the people. Yeah, and then we showed up, and you know, I, I don't know when Jacobin started getting started his YouTube channel exactly, but the point is, by going to YouTube and to Twitch, I'm not aiming to talk to college professors or. Pol future politicians. I'm trying to talk to people students. who are, uh, I guess, the students, right? And but but I think of it future professors. Well, when I, when I started Diet Soap back in 2009, the people who would listen to it were generally like 28 to 35 year old underemployed men. Oh, sure, the millennials. Yeah, right. No, really. Right, right. Yeah. Right. In other words, like just, I mean, freewheeling bourgeois of the liberal professions who are excluded from employment. That's how Adorno described intellectual. Well, I mean, one guy was, uh, his job was he would load vending machines. There were some. Yeah. Farmers. They had to take, look, a lot of young people have to take working class jobs. De you're saying that I'm still aiming at the D class A, not at the yes. actual working class. No, there's no working. I mean, we're not talking to the working class. Let's get real. I mean, I'm from the working class and I know we're not talking to them. We're not. Just right. Even if they're union organizers, the, the no, union organizers the... are staff, and oh, those right. are petty bourgeois. Those are petty bourgeois do-gooders. Those are not the workers. Mm -hmm. And you know that they try to organize their own unions within the unions, and of course they have to be beaten down because you know it's like a staff union is like breaking, you know, the solidarity because it's like your your interests as staff as against the union, right? Because, of course, the union exploits the staff. They do. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's a big mess. I mean, all of that is not a problem if you have socialist leadership. Then you mm -hmm. handle these things and you understand that you're making sacrifices and you're putting interests aside in the, with the goal of socialism. But as mm -hmm. long as unions are just a racket, which is what they are now, then mm -hmm. no. You know? No. There's no but, okay, but you you say that that you're not interested in the petty bourgeois politics and trying to get a consensus about, amongst the political class, uh, uh, you know, the left, PMCs. right? The PMC left, and, and yet and yet the platforms affiliate society is chock full of yeah. Ivy League edu you know, Ivy yeah. Leaguers and and, yeah, we're, and realistic. Uh, we're not organizing the working class. But you're not interested in organizing on the way that you, on the level you are. I mean, you just. I'm interested, but not through platypus. I knew the platypus would never be an instrument for that ever. I knew that. So what was it? Was an instrument of just 
you know keeping that I, those people out of the left basically? you know that i didn't come up with platypus right right if my students didn't recruit me to platypus it would never have happened mm-hmm. and so i tried to hem it in in terms of via negativa we're going to provide an educational resource for our members and for the broader interested young people public of the left. If you want to know why the left is so fucked up, we're going to curate it and show. And we're going to show the historical baggage. We're going to show the historical legacy. We're going to show the history for this. How did we get to this point? And we're going to do it. You know, the reading group is about this is what everybody cites. And then our public fora, this is what they are. And do you see the contradiction there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between the people who call themselves Leninists today and Lenin Mm -hmm. or the people who call themselves Luxembourgists or council communists or whatever and Luxembourg people who call themselves Marxists and Marx. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Right. And even the people who are into the Frankfurt school, do you see the difference between them and the actual Frankfurt school? Right. Right. And via negativa, just understand this is how and why the left is dead. So it's meant to serve a negative function, dissolving ideological obstacles. It's meant to, yes, disenchant young people from the left and Marxism. Let it go. Don't be a Marxist. Absolutely. Like, or if you want to be a Marxist, you're going to have to do something else. You're not going to be able to do it this way which is this ideological struggle sessions, endless ideological struggle sessions over some crackpot idea about what the, what the capitalist state should be doing instead of what it's doing now. Right. Right. Or some kind of sour grapes like, Oh, Oh, they, they, nothing that they do can ever work. No, it's going to work. It's going to work for a little while and then it's going to stop working, but it's going to work. Absolutely. It's going to work. I mean, Doug, I know that you think that the end is here. It's not. I, I don't. It I don't. Not. I worry the end is here. I don't think it's here. Well, of course, they can always do stupid things. Mm-hmm. It's not end over. Well, over. okay. So my my scenario, and I probably put too much energy into this scenario, is that because of the economic crisis ending neoliberalism, that because of the failure of neoliberalism, there will be some sort of turn back into national sovereignty and to some sort of quasi Fordism, maybe without the welfare state or without with more, you know, with more of a authoritarian. authoritarian. Yeah. But right. you know, uh, welfare state was authoritarian, remember. Right. Highly. Right. But I mean, you, you, you know, it's like you could have the authoritarianism with a lot of starvation or something, you know, like you, you, without the. Sure. And there right? always were. So that, that could be the solution, but also the competition between. Nations and the and I you can see it as clear as day. It's happening in Europe. It's happening, uh, you know, between Russia and China, United States. It's it's happening. So you can see. I was just getting into an argument with someone in Platypus today, where you know I was saying Putin and Xi are weak. Right. right? The authoritarianism of Putin and Xi is an expression of weakness. Oh, absolutely. And, And and you know this Platypus member was like. I don't see how you can say that. Look at how strong they are. Look at how they're doing this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, yeah, but watch. In other words, this is not, there's not going to be some new China, Russia based capitalism that's going to supplant Western Europe, Japan, and the United States, and South Korea and Taiwan. You know, it's no, a, but there could be. There could be a, uh, uh, a terrible miscalculation. And the you only know. thing, what I ended up saying was the only thing that Putin and Xi have are nukes. Right. Because their militaries are a joke. In other words, of course, they have millions of people in uniform and they can put on a good parade. It's a joke. Not to say that the US isn't also a joke militarily, it is, but it's less of a joke than theirs. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if it comes down to it, you know, they look good on paper militarily, but the only thing that they have is nukes. And- I recently had an argument with someone in sublation, uh-huh. similar. I said the reason the the Soviet Union was allowed to collapse into warlordism and just get picked to pieces by foreign capital was because of the weakness of the U.S. state, because of the way neoliberalism had was. You know what had, I thought at the influence. time in 1989? What? When it was happening, I thought. 
capitalism is going to bite off more than it can chew in the collapse of the Soviet Union. In other words, you know, it's an opportunity for capitalism, sure. But like basically like what Poland, like very few countries have actually benefited from the collapse of communism. Right. Right. And now, of course, China is this other example, right, of this deliberate capitalist road and blah, blah, blah. But you have to remember that, that you know, this happened at at, uh, at the at least halfway into neoliberalism. It was after the collapse of Fordism. The nation states had a completely different kind of role in propping up capitalist development than they had when World War II ended. And, and you know what, Doug, though, check it out. There's the glorious 30 years, the Tronc Glorious, right, the uh, yeah. golden age. But do you know, actually – Capitalist economists, you know what they say? What? That the greatest period of economic growth in world history is from the 80s to the 2000s. Well, so which ones those, and on what basis? And are they financialized? No, I mean, Left, right, center, everybody. All because of, of China, because of the development of China. And also because of the U.S. picked itself back up. I mean, the U.S., you know, really did do something. And... You know, so there was, I mean, there was a serious stagnation in the 70s and they did come back up from it. They did. And, you know, and it's sort of striking because it's like, okay, is this just a kind of a just so story? You know, how are they calculating this? And, you know, but no. And it's, you know, the global decrease in poverty, right? So it's like a global thing. It's well, like it's not okay. just by any means. You, you can't measure, you can't measure, um, the success of capitalist production in terms of the reduction in, of, of uh, absolute like, poverty. Why not? Absolute poverty. What else because, you because you're going to measure in terms of, of abstract value. You're not going to measure it in terms of use value. Oh, check it out. But they will use money numbers to prove the point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They're not going to resort to caloric intake or something. I no. just know that, you know, that, that there is a, a book out um, from uh, Michael Roberts, who's one of these kind of uh, value theory Marxists, showing that since the, since the seventies that there has been a consistent decline in profitability. You know, if as an overall trend, worldwide, uh, long depression worldwide. So yeah. not so you got to leave out India too. What about microfinance? Do do we forget these things so quickly from the nineties and two? 2000 aughts uh, you know take a look at the book but this is again these are, these are in, these are empirical claims they're not theoretical claims i can't justify them off the off the top of my head but my question is why does it why do you want to say that what is it what is about what is it about oh, my little count, just don't story? Count capitalism out don't say count out. don't count capitalism out oh i'm not i'm not but the question is what is required for it to overcome the there's enough uh, destruction already there's okay. enough destruction already. I mean, look, we had a whole unemployed generation, the millennials. Mm -hmm. There's right. enough destruction already. Yeah. Right? It, they, they don't need, there's, there's, that's capital destruction. Right. Oh yeah. Because when you, when you destroy the working class, you yes. are destroying capital. Yes. And right. so it's just a, it's a mistake to say, oh, you know, overvalued assets and zero profitability. And the only thing you can do is literally blow up capital goods. No, obviously you can devalue yeah. things in a multiple yeah. multitude of ways. Right. Yeah. You I mean, you, and you are talking about a generation where you have, I don't know how many million uh, unemployed people who are, are, are just completely checked out of even looking for jobs, living from, uh, you know, uh, government paycheck to government paycheck. And Off and take, taking opioids, watching just watching everything, just watching probably maybe there there those are the working class people who are watching sublation, people on opioids and <laughs> somewhere and they haven't have stopped looking for work. I hear from them. The millennials we know though are middle class. In other words, we don't hear from the millennial working class very much. We hear from downwardly mobile millennial middle class, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, the people that I know on the left, not just in platypus, who are struggling to make a living, their parents are fine, right? Mm -hmm. So they're just struggling to 
get out of their parents' house or they're struggling to start a family or they're struggling, you know, to, to hold a job consistently and, mm-hmm. you know, or they're struggling with gigs, you know, mm-hmm. and, but they're downwardly mobile people. I mean, the working class is just mute. The working class just doesn't exist. You know, I mean, they don't even vote very much, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, they're just, they just don't exist. You know, they're, they're crushed completely and totally. And they'll just accept. I mean, I have been, you know, married to a working class person before that long-term relationships with working class people. They work third shift. They sleep in the car for a few hours between shifts at different jobs. They just accept anything. They're just, they're, they don't exist in the public sphere at all. Right. And yet they are, they are producing the goods and they're producing the value too. I've had working class jobs. I worked at Comcast, you know, in yeah. the telemarketing room. I know I hung around with real honest to God, working class yeah. people. Yeah, 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 you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, like in other words, people, this is how they live. And um, they're just. I told one of them I was writing a book and she looked at me like I was crazy and said, why the fuck are you doing that? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's not because she didn't ever like reading. You know, it wasn't because she was some illiterate. It was just like. Yeah. Just wasn't on the radar for something that people not even on the radar right just totally right right. and so you know i mean i just think that again i've been very realistic about what i'm doing in platypus Mm -hmm. and very aware of the limitations and you know and you know people are made uncomfortable by that because it sort of shows up the pretense of the left which you know the left is a pretense and, you know, they just are what they are. They're wannabe Democratic Party politicians. They're, they're wannabe corporate management consultants. They're wannabe academic intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And I've always been aware of the fact that, you know, academia was not going to be a path to, like, socialist politics influence or something. I mean, I guess, you know, like David Harvey, whatever. But, you know, who's he talking to? Who's he influencing? Jacobin nobody, readers. Nobody that matters. Uh, at best. Um, um, <laughs> from my standpoint, right? No. So again, a proletarian socialist politics would have to be constituted before it can be transcended. And it's not going to be transcended before the revolution. When I started the Diet Soap podcast, it was really an autodidactic uh, project. Mm-hmm. And it, it remains one, mm-hmm. really. So for me, I'm always just it, my my only real litmus test is: Have I learned something from this guest? Have I have I figured something out a little bit more? I think that it's been a couple of years since I really felt like I was making headway. Um, honestly, well, like there's I, less to learn about now. I mean, we are we are in the doldrums right now, right? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. the Biden. I mean, this is the worst presidency ever. People thought Trump was. Uh, I still, I would still say Bush was the worst presidency ever. No. But, but, but we'll see. I mean, no, wait, why am I saying that? That's crazy. Yeah. No, of course Biden yeah. is the worst president ever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's an abject failure. And we're not, on, the, on the basis of like, oh, well, Bush brought us into two wars that were entirely unnecessary. And then I step back. Well, Biden is putting us into a situation. Much where worse. Threat, threat, threatened world war is a possibility here. Like that is, I mean, what he's doing is, you know, I mean, basically it's like we had kicking the can down the road. We had for a while with George W. Bush, with Obama. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, they can't do that anymore. And that's how Trump came in. Trump came in, you know, no, we can't forestall this forever. And, you know, we do need, something different like we can't just be confronting china and russia we have to play china and russia off of each other and you know and by the way i mean biden has kind of unified them against the united states but their their conflict of interest with each other china and russia is greater than either of their conflict of interest with the united states actually right so you know the the triangulation the realistic foreign policy is going to prevail 
but the problem is is that it's a unipolar world it still is a unipolar world and so when there's a vacuum power fills it and guess what the power is the united states in other words the united states can't help itself but support ukraine and this and that like you know like it gets it gets sucked in you know it can't help but don't do- you think there was an opportunity at the start for a negotiated um settlement before there was even an invasion i mean it, it, i i maybe i'm really naive but what putin was asking for was some sort of commitment that ukraine wouldn't join nato and sure, no one in the united states in the blob no one in the washington consensus wanted ukraine to join nato not right away if no, at all right, right. So, so why it, not why not give him what you already want yourself why why it's me right, they wanted right. that invasion this is this is super basic right yeah which is that you can't reward putin for invading no but this was before he was amassing troops right well you can't give in to him under threat either uh, so, no seriously but, i mean it's 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 a kind of a I mean, the world does sleepwalk into these things. I mean, and it's political. Right. It's not capitalism. This is politics. This is right. like, you know, World War One, you know, type stuff. Now, the difference being that, you know, Russia is not Germany. World War One, Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, China, I guess, might be. But it's just not. You know, it's not the same situation. Again, militarily. I mean, basically... The threat of nuclear war is, is you know, it's like a bluff, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, not from the U.S., though, by the way. I mean, the U.S., the U.S. is the only country that ever used nuclear weapons. Right. And the U.S. is likely the country that will use them. Russia and China, no. Because they'll just be destroyed completely. The U.S. is going to dangerously think, you know what? You can do this. Right. So they, you know, I remember the Clinton administration and the Obama administration contemplated nuking North Korea. You know, not wiping it out, but destroying their facility, their underground facility. And they thought about doing that with Gaddafi in Libya because he had an underground chemical weapons. And Bush also said that nuclear weapons were on the table when they when he started uh, going into Iraq. Yeah. And they are on the table. And the U.S. has them forward deployed. I mean, they have tactical nukes. They have their submarines and their cruise missiles and aircraft carriers and everything. I mean, you know, so what what these countries like Russia and China having nuclear weapons announced to or North Korea or Iran trying to get nuclear weapons, it's it's basically like, how do we keep the U.S. from nuking us? Because the U.S. might. Right. And. So, you know, I mean, the problem is that, you know, the U.S. might nuke them to prevent them from using nuclear weapons. Like, you know, like, in other words, it's, it's a kind of a unipolar world still. And so you just have these sort of chaos at the edges. Right. And um, there was an interview with Putin by Oliver Stone on Showtime, and I watched it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Putin just said... It's hard for the U.S. to do this, but they just have to let us have our own sphere of influence because the U.S. can't govern the whole world and it can't govern Asia. Like, and, you know, it just can't. It's going to want to try, but it can't. And so the U.S. just has to let us take care of business in our area. Mm. And we're not looking for a conflict with the U.S., but it's like the U.S. can't help but try to manage everything, and it can't manage everything, and they just got to let us manage our area. Mm-hmm. And look, the Ukraine war, what was going on between 2014 and 2022? Eight years. Mm-hmm. There was a civil war in eastern Ukraine going on. Mm-hmm. Neo-Nazis versus Russian nationalists. Breakaway mm-hmm. separatist Russians being fought by neo-Nazi militias. Eight years of that. There are people in Russia, of course, the government, but also other people supporting the Russian nationalist separatists in eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to do something. Russia, the central government in Ukraine, like, how are you going to resolve this? Really? And mm-hmm. the U.S., by the way, was helping the Ukrainian government throughout all this. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's just, it's like there was this war. It didn't start in 2022. There was a war going on mm-hmm. already. And it just escalated, you know? And, you know, so Putin was like, okay, so the the only way, because, you know, this is the way wars have to be. If If you can't get the Ukrainian government to agree to not allow the neo-Nazis to squash the Russian separatists, then what do you have to do? You have to try to decapitate the Ukrainian government. I mean, it's politics. Meaning mm. if you can't negotiate with them, then you have to eliminate them and bring in a new Ukrainian government that will say, yeah, you know what? We don't want the civil war to go on forever, right? And if the Zelensky government can't rein in the neo-Nazis, because he can't, he can't, he can't. He's totally their hostage. Then Putin's got to do it for him. Denazification, military operation of denazification. You know, it sounds all crazy and Orwellian and whatever, but from Putin's standpoint, he's a rational actor. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of what you're saying makes sense, but look, we, we're about an hour and five minutes in. Capitalism that's driving it, really. No, this is the thing. This is what I want to get to. And so we're about an hour and five minutes in. And I think um, where you and I have our differences in our in our understanding has to do with the extent to which I think that our uh, that it's a historically specific mediating structure of labor, abstract labor, that then sets up their politics, that then sets up the well, terms by up, which we... It sets up a, a global political order, generally. It sets conditions. And, you know, Russia is a loser in global capitalism. It's a yeah, so this is, It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a gas station with nukes, like whatever they say, the Biden administration. They say, oh, Russia is nothing. It's a gas station with nukes. Well, Ukraine is nothing too. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe by far. Extreme. So this this is a point where from here on out, we'll be talking for patrons uh, one hour and five minutes, and we'll continue talking. We don't even have to stop really, but we'll continue talking about about um, the connection between uh, capitalist material relations and social relations, both and the realm of politics. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.